as a Wolverine and a Buckeye over here, mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, we have a lot of respect for one another. Uh, but from, in your opinion, what makes being a Michigan fan morally superior? Uh, other than the fact that my close friend from our days in St. Louis, Dan Deardorff, played for the Michigan Wolverines. I can't oh, think of one reason what a setup. why Michigan you guys work is this out before? No, 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 no. This is no just BS. Come I, on. I cannot think of any other reason why I was Michigan a fan. So, Jordan, I was thinking this morning, you know, I'm a fanboy of Bob Costas, who we have, who we have on, and I was thinking about Growing up, you know, it was interesting. I don't know if you played sports as a kid, but we, we, we would go up to the playground, knock each other around, play baseball, football, basketball. There weren't any parents up there. There weren't any coaches up there. We'd have fist fights. We'd yell about whether the ball was fair or foul. And we did it every day. And it, it kind of shaped my life, the fact that we hung out together and fought together and argued together. And it was a glorious time. I mean, did you have an experience like that when you were a kid? Did you play sports up on the sandlot without all this adult supervision? Well, I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds like I would have had to be alive in the 1910s to have that <laughs> similar experience. Uh, so there were no sandlots, and we respected the rules much more than you did. So there were no fisticuffs. But but I was I was a big sports kid. I played I played basketball growing up, uh, a big, tall, lanky kid. My dad was the coach of the basketball team. Oh, and... you were one of those where you got on the team because your daddy was the coach. No, no. It's not why I got on the team. I got on the team because of the kind of thing that you pay for and everybody gets on the team. So that's <laughs> technically why I was bought into it. But uh, sports has always been a, a big part of my life. Yeah. Um, I, I grew up going to Michigan football games from the age of 6 to 18. I went to every single game. When my mother said she was pregnant with what would soon be my brother, I, I talked incessantly about naming that child Desmond every day until he was born and given the name Max with absolutely no consideration for the name Desmond. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think like my relationship has become one now of, of fandom and less participation, but uh, you, you so can't you're gonna deny. So you get your son when, when he gets, I mean, he's only what, 14 months old now. I mean, do you, do you want to push him somehow into sports? I, you know, I th- I've talked with my wife about this, who is not a sports person at all. Uh, oh. Although we are going to a Brooklyn Nets game tonight, she's she's become an NBA fan. I think it's important for him to be a part of sports. Uh, she doesn't want him to play football, and I think that kind of breaks my heart. And that's a larger conversation that we've started to have about the safety of a sport like that with a kid. Uh, but I hope he finds basketball, uh, tennis, and dear Lord, I hope he never finds soccer. You know, Jordan, the funny thing about it, though, is, and you're right, things have changed dramatically. From when I was a young kid growing up, we didn't have adults. We didn't have trophies. You, sometimes you didn't get picked because you weren't as good as the other players. But it was, it was, a, so sh- it was a shaping experience for me uh, because it was just us. And every once in a while, an adult would show their face. But Today, everybody's got to have their parents on the sidelines. You got to have co- the parents are fighting with the coaches. You know, the kids are like, "What the hell's going on?" And in a way, it's sad. I talked to a couple of my pals, and we look back on those memories. I'm sure Costas, who's going to be with us in a minute, had those experiences because you know we're about the same age. But hopefully, we can get back to the parents kind of butting out and let the kids kind of grow up and have those great lessons from sports. You know, you're hoping that we could live in a society where parents don't show up to support their children. That's I, I, that's I, what you're I, rooting for. Well, I think it's great for parents to show up, but I don't want them fighting with the refs or arguing who ought to get in the game and all that other kind of stuff. But but maybe we ought to go to Costas, who is, you know, like the king of all this. He knows about everything there is to know about sports. Uh, just in case anybody who's listening doesn't know this. I mean, it's basketball. It's baseball. It's golf, it's football, it's the Olympics. You've done all of it. You've seen just about everything there is to see in sports. If I were to ask you, you've seen great performances or whatever, but can you think of two or three of them or one or two of them that affected you emotionally? Where you saw yeah. something and you it just went right to your heart and maybe you had to fight back tears and or maybe you you cried. Anything that strikes you like that? 
Well, Muhammad Ali lighting the torch at the Olympics in 1996 in Atlanta pulled together so many different emotions simultaneously. It was a great moment of reconciliation between Ali and the portion of America which was skeptical about him or even antagonistic toward him. In the end, he won them all over, not just with his athletic greatness, but with the obvious display over time of his basic human decency once he was a polarizing figure. But he had so many admirable and uh, likable human qualities that in the end, it all had come together. But as I told Muhammad on one occasion, people like easy storylines when it comes to something like Ali. So the storyline was white America had no use for him, but he was an important voice for black America, which America, which of course he was. But a very large portion of white America from the beginning, especially younger people, and you and I were young once, in the 60s and 70s, on a college campus, a Northeastern college campus like Syracuse in the early 1970s, Ali was already a god, not just for his athletic greatness, not just because of his stand during the civil rights movement, but he stood against the war in Vietnam, and we weren't in favor of it either. So, you know, a huge portion of America was already in his corner. So. That moment, that moment was very moving for me. Michael Jordan's last shot as a Chicago Bull, I was lucky enough to call that and be courtside in Salt Lake City. And it was such a classic moment. Ted Williams hit a home run in his last time at bat, but it wasn't at the World Series. This was the finals. They're down by a point. The basket puts them up by a point. They win the game. It's the sixth title. He goes 6-0 and in the finals. The perfect way to end a career. Of course, he had such a competitive Jones that he had to come back a few years later with the Washington Wizards. But that's a mere footnote in his career. That's the, really the one that brought the curtain down. And the other um, is just the most theatrical moment I was ever involved with in sports, which was Kirk Gibson's pinch hit home run off oh, Dennis Eckersley yeah. in game one of the World Series in 1988. It was, so, it was very much like, and I said in the immediate aftermath, it reminded me of Robert Redford's last at bat as Roy Hobbs in The Natural. You know, Gibson wasn't bleeding from a bullet wound, but he was just about as impaired hobbling around as he was. It seemed like it would be a miracle if he could even tap a ground ball. And somehow he hits the ball into the pavilion in right field. Again, it turns a one-run deficit into a one-run victory in the bottom of the ninth. In front of a home crowd, the place goes completely nuts. Vin Scully's call couldn't be any better if you had a week to script it. The whole thing came together so theatrically. And Gibson has told me and others since then that while he did it, his primary memory of it is from watching the replays of it because it played out almost like a movie. Yeah. Can, can I fanboy out on this? But I mean, these are incredible stories. You're, you're there on Michael Jordan's last, uh, last shot with the Chicago Bulls, yeah. and you have a, a, a job to do at that point, but you also uh, have some sort of relationship with the people who are also the players at that time. Where does that blur or where does that connect? Do you, do you talk to Michael Jordan that night? Do you have a personal moment with some of the people who have gone through these giant experiences, or do you try to separate yourself from that, or is that impossible to separate yourself from that? What did he smell like? And also, I want to know that, too. What did he smell like on that day? <laughs> well, it smells different when he enters in a suit. It smells great. I'm not saying I got all the way up in his face, okay. but it seems to, seems to have a good fragrance about it. <laughs> I after, imagine. Immediate, I... Immediately after the game, you know, the guys are sweating, and it might be a little bit. And also depending on how, what his proximity was to Dennis Rodman at <laughs> that particular moment. But I did, as a matter of fact, speak with him right after the game almost randomly. We'd finish the broadcast, we'd wrap the thing up, and I'm walking out of the Delta Center, and he's still in uniform with a towel draped over his shoulder, still dripping wet from champagne or some combination of sweat and champagne, and brandishing a huge cigar, just happens to come walking my path. And all I said to him was, congratulations, Michael, that was amazing. And he said, thank you, my friend. But I think in that moment, everybody was his friend. He could have been like a random guy wearing a jazz jersey or something. But um, I, I think what sometimes people misunderstand the role of a network announcer. The, the Bulls announcer, the jazz announcer in that moment, and there always are local broadcasts, they can flat out root if that's their inclination. The network broadcaster should tr be trying to capture the feel of the moment. 
It would have been different if that game had been played in Chicago because there would have been pandemonium after his series-winning shot instead of stunned silence from the Delta Center crowd. But you also have to just be mindful of what's the big story. This wasn't just the story of an NBA Finals. It was the story of they'd already dubbed it the last dance. Phil Jackson had used that term. It was only 20-plus years later that a documentary bearing that name happened. He'd already said this, this is where it ends. And so you had to be mindful that this was one of the most epic careers in American sports and one of the great dynasties as a team in American sports. So even though the Jazz were a worthy team and they're striving to win it, their story, while a great one, is a secondary story to the Bulls, just looking at it objectively. So you're not broadcasting it for a Bulls fan or a Jazz fan. You're broadcasting it for somebody in Tacoma who isn't rooting for either team, but is enthralled by an exciting event. Plus, Michael Jordan transcended all of it. I've said this many times. One of the big differences between Michael Jordan and LeBron James is if you want to just compare them strictly as basketball players, you can make any argument you want. But no little old lady in Omaha ever said, Mildred, I'd like to play bridge tonight, but I can't. I got to watch LeBron James. But millions of those little old ladies <laughs> said that about Michael Jordan. Little old ladies who didn't know the difference between a three-pointer and a backdoor play, they wanted to watch Michael Jordan. I knew in that moment, and you didn't have to be a genius to know it, I knew in that moment that that shot by Jordan holding the pose, almost as if he was posing for uh, a sculptor to make a statue, I knew that that picture and that moment wasn't just on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And it wasn't just on the front page of the sports section. It was on the front page of newspapers across the country. You'd have to be pretty dopey not to recognize that. So I framed that differently. And what I said, thankfully, holds up pretty well, you know, 25 years later, whatever it is. I framed that differently than if it had just been an exciting NBA Finals game. There's a long answer to your short question. I keep <laughs> going, Bob. My, my Lord. Jordan, I don't know about you. You're, you're a big Michigan fan. I'm an Ohio State fan. But, you know, Bob, are we going to lose the innocence of, of college athletics if we continue down this path of high dollars and transfers and I get paid as a player? Where does this take us? I don't think we're going to lose it, Governor Kasich. I think it's gone. It may exist to a certain extent in a few places, Division Two, Division Three. There may be a few places even at the higher levels of competition in Division One, where because the program is established enough. Duke, for example, in basketball. Stanford plays high-level sports and generally maintains a, a level of academic integrity and, and demand of some sort of actual relationship between athletics and academics. But for the most part, you take a look at where it's going. Alabama plays Georgia again in the championship game. I'm not disparaging either one of those programs on their own terms. They're both excellent. But you can tell pretty much who's going to be in the championship game or get close to it in college football by just looking at how many NFL prospects they have on their rosters. It's a semi-pro situation to begin with. And while the NCAA tried to hold the line as long as they could against any kind of compensation for college athletes, and then finally after uh, the Supreme Court ruled against them and they saw which way the thing was going, they allowed so-called NIL, name, image, and likeness, where you could do a commercial or do an autograph signing or something, but they still can't be directly paid by their colleges. Meanwhile, and Brian Kelly going from Notre Dame to LSU was only the latest example, you have coaches bemoaning players who are pro prospects opting out of lower-level bowl games that don't mean jack, opting out of the... Uh, the XYZ Polan Weed Eater Classic uh, on a Tuesday afternoon because they don't want to run the risk of being hurt before the NFL draft. Meanwhile, some of those very coaches themselves, and most recently invisibly Brian Kelly, bail on their teams, which are bowl-bound. He couldn't have waited until Notre Dame played in its bowl game to sign up with LSU. I guess he couldn't because there were players to go and recruit, and I'm sure he's recruiting them based only on their potential as Rhodes Scholars rather than as NFL players. <laughs> well, and he, did, he didn't leave for the money either. He left for other reasons, which I'd like to hear why he left. <laughs> yes. But, 
Yes. Well, what was interesting, I don't know Brian Kelly at all, and I'm sure he's a fine guy in many other respects, but he apparently at the press conference began to mysteriously affect some sort of Louisiana drawl. <laughs> some sort of, he almost started speaking Creole. I don't know what the hell was going on. Is, is there now, you know, as a Michigan fan, the, the word in my household was always a Michigan man. A Mich- Bo mm-hmm. Schembechler was a Michigan man. I was going to be right. named Bo after Bo Schembechler, the Michigan man. In fact, my father's, he, I've only seen him cry twice and once was at the, the death of Michigan's football coach, Bo Schembechler, and the other was at the death of our dog, Bo, named after Michigan football coach, Bo Schembechler. So being a Michigan man is, is, is an identity and it's, it's, it's the closest thing to any kind of divinity that we have in our family. And I think that was such a connection to Harbaugh when he came back and mm-hmm. how much of that is an illusion and something that we should continue to aim for or dream that is still out there in college football or, do you think that is that is gone and perhaps that's just a story we've been telling ourselves that we need to to move on and and get with the the program here's what i say isn't an illusion the shared experience you know you go to michigan you go to the big house for the games there were other aspects to your college experience but you're not reminded of them in an amplified way on a regular basis but you are through michigan football and also basketball I went to Syracuse. The football team isn't very good anymore, but the basketball team, Jim Beheim has been the coach since 1976, since a couple of years after my class graduated from Syracuse. So it's a constant in my life and it connects me to some of the people that I went to school with. So I think that part is real. Uh, If we're going to always believe in the idea of student athletes and that playing football or basketball now, those are the two revenue-producing sports. We're not talking about the crew team. We're not talking about women's tennis. We're not talking about lacrosse. That may actually be some sort of appropriate academic athletic relationship. But if we're, if we're going to cling to the quaint and now completely outdated belief that big-time basketball and football are just extracurricular activities, the same way as playing in the school band or being part of the debate team is, um, you know, if that's your delusion that keeps you happy, go ahead. But I can't sign off on it. Jordan just said, Bob, that, you know, he's going to take his wife to see the Nets, which would be really cool. You know, I've followed the NBA for a lot of years, but I can't figure out who's on what team anymore. Right. And the same thing in baseball. When I was a kid, Roberto Clemente, you remember him. I mean, mm-hmm. we loved him. Willie Stargell. We, we could identify with these players who were playing for these teams. And now it's like, I don't know who's playing for any team. Is this going to kill the passion of fans, this constant revolving door of these athletes? Or do we not have to care about it? It morphs into something and already has morphed into something different. And we see the continued popularity, at least as it had been measured by attendance and television revenues and merchandising and all the rest. Um, sports are more lucrative than they've ever been. But for people of a certain age, like you and me, we can note the differences. Uh, I did the eulogy at Mickey Mantle's funeral in 1995. I grew up on Long Island, grew up rooting for the Yankees. And obviously they were a great team. So it's easier for a great team to keep its core together. But you knew the lineup from year to year. So anyway, I do this eulogy and there was a very gratifying response to it. But more than half of it came from non-Yankee fans. And a lot of it went like this. I grew up as a Tiger fan. My guy was Al Kaline. Or I grew up as a Cub fan. My guy was Ernie Banks. But I knew what you were talking about and what baseball meant to you. And same thing that it meant to me when I was growing up. And even a team like the Cubs, which never won the pennant during Ernie Banks' career, you knew that Ernie Banks was the big star, but Ron Santa was on that team and Billy Williams was on that team. And that was your team. That was who you rooted for. Al Kaline's Tigers never got to the World Series until late in his career in 1968. But you knew Al Kaline and Norm Cash and Mickey Lolich is their ace left-hander. That's, that's more or less gone now. That's seldom the case anymore. So that's, it, it, but we lose something with that, don't we? I mean, yeah. we lose sort of the innocence with college sports. We lose the, the, the innocence of rooting for a team because they become part of our family and the town in which we live. It's not like we don't lose anything when things go this commercial. I mean, I think. Yeah. You know, John, uh, the, the word I've sometimes used, and maybe some people, younger people especially, would roll their eyes, 
there's still the intense interest in sports. There's still the excitement and shared experience. But a word that you seldom hear applied to sports anymore is fondness. In, in our generation and before, we felt a certain fondness for our team, a certain affection that went beyond just almost demanding victory in this game or the excitement of the game. There was a different kind of connection, but the world changes. You know, it's been interesting. Uh, some, I, I think I need to stick up for young people on this conversation, guys. So <laughs> you're, excuse me. You're their sole representative. <laughs> yeah, the, the young 42-year-old's going to stick up right. here. Well, something I've noticed, so like my, my wife is somebody who's uh, never been that interested in sports. Um, and I'm a, a diehard college football fan, and she is barely interested in college football, but it's taken to the NBA. It's fluid in a way that she really in, enjoys, uh, but she likes the personalities. And what I noticed living here in Brooklyn, there was a New York Times uh, article about Kevin Durant. And in my weird little Brooklyn bubble, everybody I know who wasn't into sports became huge Kevin Durant fans. And I think the story of these players and their stories has become... Uh, uh, we, we now in this reality TV culture, like we want to know everything about them and we have this fondness with them. And I've also seen this with the Netflix is doing a series on F1 racing. And because you can now understand the personalities here, I have all these friends who are huge F1 racing fans. And so it feels like as much as there is a, a lack of connection to a, uh, a team or a place in the way that maybe you, you once had or even I had growing up with the, the Tigers of my youth. I am seeing people around me really start to understand these personalities on a different level that they've never seen before. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And I'm sure that social media contributes to it. There's also the other side of social media, the nasty side. A guy who's a really good player has a couple of bad games that he's being vilified all over Twitter or on blog sites that cater to us to a certain team. And the big difference, just using the Nets as an example, and I'm not saying there's not a good reason to root for them. They're a potentially terrific team. But Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Kyrie Irving had already made their reputations elsewhere. So this is like you go to the playground, and instead of, okay, I pick first, you know how we used to do it. Yeah. We'd, we'd, you know, odds <laughs> and evens or whatever it might be, or rock, yeah. paper, scissors. And now if I get the first pick, then you get the next two. And then we'll alternate after that because we want the game to be as even as possible. Oh, LeBron James was one of the greatest players of all time. Starts out in, with his hometown Cavaliers, pivots to the Heat. They put together a super team with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh. And then he comes back to Cleveland, wins a championship there. Okay, so he's checked that box. Then with off Kyrie, he goes. With Kyrie. Right, right, with Kyrie, who made a huge clutch shot late yep. in, the, in the pivotal finals game. And then off he goes to the Lakers, where things kind of worked out, maybe not 100% as he would have hoped, but surrounded by a whole lot of other stars. And that's just, that's just the, way, the way of the world now. So I guess in most situations you say, my team is hoping to catch lightning in a bottle, and I will enjoy it for the three to five years where maybe that happens. But is it a career-long or lifetime-long connection? Maybe not so much. We'll be right back after this. And now back to the show. I have been fascinated by this woman, Susan Butcher, who won the Iditarod uh, several times over all those men in Alaska. Maybe the one of the most grueling races you could mm -hmm. ever enter. And then with King Richard, how how does he raise Venus and Serena? I mean, it's unbelievable. Right, tell us a little bit about the women, the performance that you have seen of women. That has really mm -hmm. taken your breath away. Serena, you can make a very strong case. It's difficult to compare across eras, but statistically and by everything that we can uh, reasonably measure, uh, there's a good case to be made for her as the greatest female tennis player of all time. At the Olympics, uh, women's sports, especially from an American perspective, have pretty much moved into 50-50 in terms of the attention paid to it. I think a Jackie Joyner-Kersey, she was such a great all-round athlete that at her peak, she might have been uh, the greatest female athlete in the world, a great Olympian and also... And she very... was there with what? Florence Griffith Joyner, as I recall. Yeah. Was it the same Olympics at the same time? Yeah, that was... Of course, Jackie had additional Olympics, but right. Flojo was, was big in 1988 and, and they were sisters-in-law. 
Um, oh, and I then, didn't yeah, Jackie is married to uh, Flojo's brother. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, yeah, that's right. That's right. Flojo's brother. And Jackie's brother, Al Joyner, won a medal in the triple jump at the Olympics. So it was a, like a whole family, family affair thing. Billie Jean King will be remembered not just for her tennis greatness, but for uh, being an important person in the feminist movement. At the Olympics in 1996, American women, the soccer players, the uh, Magnificent Seven gymnasts with Kerry Strug having the punctuation mark with that last moment. They were such a big story, and the uh, Olympics were in Atlanta. And I dubbed it the Title IX Olympics because if you think about the time frame, that was the first generation of American female athletes who really had grown up with Title IX and benefited from that. Uh, my sister was just two years younger than me, never played an organized sport. I wasn't the world's greatest athlete, but I played lots of organized sports growing up. Now, just one generation later, my daughter played pretty much the same number of organized sports in school, field hockey, soccer, a little bit of gymnastics, a little bit of softball. When my son Keith is playing baseball and basketball and, and Taylor played basketball as well. That's, that's a revolution. And sometimes we only look at it at the highest levels because that's what we pay attention to. But that, that whole Title IX thing changed the sports experience for millions and millions of young American girls. I'm fascinated by the way you talk about your role as a broadcaster there and being reflective of the experience in, in the room, but also cultural mm -hmm. experience. Uh, and even, and even right there, knowing that the, the Title IX Olympics at that point is, is something that becomes a, a cultural touchstone for uh, many young athletes and even has ramifications uh, today. Uh, like, when you're prepping for these these events, prepping to have an understanding of the players that are there uh, and the potential of what might happen within that game. But I'm also curious about like you walking through the larger picture and thinking about how you are going to frame some of these stories. And is that something that you are preparing and thinking about beforehand? Is that something that you you have success with because you're finding it in the moment and you're attuned to what is happening there? Like, How do you approach something that you know is going to be profound in some sense? It's a little bit of both, Jordan. I don't like to script anything word for word. Sometimes you can tell if a broadcaster has anticipated a big moment and he, and it's usually a he in those moments, has gotten it word for word. He's got something in his head that he's going to say if it comes to fruition as, as he thinks it might. But I do have thoughts. I, first of all, it was game six. We go back to Michael Jordan. It was game six. So you didn't know. If John Stockton had made the last shot, which bounced off the, off the rim, they play a game seven in Utah. And who knows? Maybe the Jazz win that game. So you can't, you can't sell out to a certain storyline until it plays out. And in fact, when Jordan made that shot, I said, who knows what will unfold in the next several months. But that may have been the last shot Michael Jordan will ever take in the NBA. And our production team was so good. That as I was saying this, no way you could plan it, they ran a slow motion replay that matched what I was saying, and they had no idea what I was going to say. That may have been the last shot Michael Jordan will ever take in the NBA. And if that's the last image of Michael Jordan, how magnificent is it? And what a way to close the book. And the way they matched it, if you had 10 tries at it, you couldn't have done it any better. And so that's that, that, that kind of uh, cohesion between the truck, the producers, and, and what you're saying is, is important. And you need to show up knowing what those storylines are, but not forcing it if they don't play out exactly that way. A, a less profound example is Derek Jeter's last game as a New York Yankee. They had three games remaining at Fenway Park, but he'd announced his retirement, and we knew that this was his last home game. Who could know that it would end with him getting a walk-off hit as if you had scripted it. If you had it in that script, they'd re reject it as, as too corny. But coming into that game, I'm thinking, this game doesn't have much relevance. The Yankees are out of the playoffs. The Orioles, who they were playing, pretty much had clinched their playoff position. It's all about Derek Jeter. And he's part of the line of Yankee greats. He'll be in Monument Park, and he'll be mentioned along with Ruth and Gehrig and DiMaggio and Mantle and all the rest. So I 
started to think about, did Yankee fans know when it was Babe Ruth's last at bat? No, they didn't because he went and played for the Boston Braves for one year and then quit in the middle of the season. DiMaggio, he announced his retirement after 51 World Series. People knew that Mickey Mantle was limping to the finish line, but they didn't know for sure what his last at-bat would be. Uh, Gehrig was different. He pulled himself out of the lineup in May of 1939 and had been diagnosed with ALS after that. But no one knew, like, oh, here he comes for his last at-bat. There was almost nothing comparable to that of all the Yankee greats. But here we knew that this is what was going on uh, with Derek Jeter. And so throughout the game, I wove in the stories of here's what happened with Ruth. Here's what happened with DiMaggio, et cetera, et cetera. And now now we see this situation. And the Yankees came into the top of the ninth leading five to two. So Jeter goes out to shortstop. And the speculation becomes, will Joe Girardi remove him from the game so he gets a standing ovation? But then an Oriole hit a home run, and now it's five to three. And now there's a man on base, and he's still out there, and they're taking shots of him. And their next thing that happens, a game-tying home run. And now the score is five to five. So as I think it was Steve Pierce of the Orioles is rounding the bases, I say if there's a silver lining here for the sellout crowd at Yankee Stadium, it's this. Jeter bats third in the bottom of the ninth. So you're anticipating what might happen. And the first guy got a base hit, sacrificed to second, up comes Jeter. So you hope you have set the stage for that, whether it pays off or not. So the drama played out and the tension played out. And he so masterfully um, was able to, to build and to build toward it and frame it. The framing is almost as important as what you say in the exact moment of payoff. And now to end this little attempted soliloquy, the miracle on ice moment, Al Michaels' iconic call, do you believe in miracles? Yes. This is seldom noted, but to me, it seems obvious. That was one of the very few times in the history of American sports television where the announcer could be 100% certain that very close to 100% of the audience was rooting for the same team. (laughs) This wasn't the Super Bowl or the NBA Finals. Not, not only is it the American team, it's against the hated Soviet Union. Yeah. Right? So it's our, our rivals and they're, and they're ridiculously prohibitive underdogs. And the, the game isn't in Switzerland. It's in Lake Placid. It, it's every element you could possibly hope for. And then Al, who was one of the greatest who's ever done it, not only says, do you believe in miracles? Yes. But again, these are little moments, but they play into how we remember it. The puck was cleared from behind the net out to center ice with like five seconds to go. So Al knew that there was no way the Russians could recoup and get a decent shot on goal. So he was able to say, there's five seconds. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. And at the exact moment he says yes, now the clock's going to hit zero. And all the Americans thrust their sticks up in the air. And it almost looked metaphorically like exclamation points after the yes. That is that doesn't happen by accident. That's a sense of the rhythm and the pace of what's happening on television, as opposed to on radio, where where you got a blank canvas and you paint the whole picture. Your job on television is to put the best possible caption beneath the picture, especially in dramatic moments. Those were very few words. Do you believe in miracles? Yes, but they were perfectly timed, perfectly paced, and a perfect caption beneath an unforgettable picture. We're getting ready to do the Olympics. I assume you're going to be out there for it. No, I'm not. No, I'm done. Okay. I did a dozen and I'm you, done. Uh, it's amazing that you did it. And I mean, to be an anchor for the Olympics is just un- unbelievable. But when we look at these issues of the human rights, the politics, uh, you know, the Russians in Afghanistan, we cancel in, in 80, I think it wasn't in 80. When, uh, 80, 80, 80. Yeah. And then, you know, we had the Israeli massacre. You remember, I mean, that was totally unbelievable. Now there's a lot of push now talking about the Uyghurs in China. How do we deal with that, in your opinion? You know, you've, you've been on site. Yeah. What do we do? Well, if you flash back to 1980, Jimmy Carter ordered a complete boycott. The American athletes did not go to the 80 Olympics in Moscow. 
that didn't have any tangible effect on Soviet policy. And the net effect was that it deprived all of these athletes of their opportunity to compete. Competition they had spent four years or maybe the better part of a lifetime preparing for it. And Olympic athletes are in a different position than the team sport athletes we follow in other sports in America because you lose the Super Bowl, you come back to training camp a few months later, lose the World Series, spring training a few months later. Here, it's once every four years at most, once in a lifetime for many. And then uh, the Soviets and the Eastern Bloc responded by boycotting themselves four years later when the Olympics were held in Los Angeles. So I think even though it doesn't seem like as strong a rebuke as many of us would hope for, I think the, the path that the Biden administration has taken, a diplomatic boycott, which registers disapproval of China's human rights record, but allowing the athletes to go, that's probably the best course to take because you don't want to hurt the athletes and have no positive net effect coming out of that full boycott. What about baseball? If there's no baseball in 2022, who does that hurt most? Is that, is that the owners? Is it the fans? Is it the players? You know who it really hurts most? It hurts most the, the daily worker, the usher, the hot dog or beer vendor, the guy in the parking lot at the ballpark, the receptionist, the guy who takes the tickets. That's what really hurts the most in a, in a tangible way. The lockout's a tactic on the part of the owners. The collective bargaining agreement ran out on December 1st. They locked the players out on December 2nd. So it freezes free agent signings. It freezes trades. It suspends some benefits for the players. If it spills over into the season, then the players start losing paychecks. It's a game of chicken. Uh, if we get into all the issues, and the issues are more nuanced now than they used to be way back when, when the players really were entirely in the right. Now, to me, it just seems like, okay, we got a giant pot. Let's figure out an intelligent way and a fair way to divide it without hurting the industry, without damaging the golden goose. How, how do we figure this out? Where do we see our mutual interest? It's certainly not in our mutual interest to lose games, either through a lockout or a strike, because it pisses fans off at a time when baseball no longer is the unchallenged national pastime. And when baseball has competition, not just from other sports, but from the things that draw the attention of a different society. This is a, a short attention span society. Baseball always had a pleasing leisurely pace. Now it has a sometimes frustrating and infuriating lethargic pace, which is completely out of step with 21st century America and especially younger Americans, and they need to address that. So they're already losing the attention of some of those fans or potential fans. Now, if they let their internal squabbles take the game away, that, that can't help. So we hope that both sides, and they have their positions, and it's necessarily adversarial to an extent, but that they see that their mutual interest uh, exceeds their differences. Can, can baseball, though, Bob, continue to thrive when you take Pittsburgh, small small market, right? I mean, anytime they get a good player, a good pitcher, whatever, they get they have to trade them. Cincinnati, every once in a while, you know, St. Yep. Louis can sneak through and win. Maybe Kansas City, but you know, in our in Cleveland, here in here in Ohio, maybe even in Detroit, you know, in, in Michigan, you, we can't afford them. And and in, in NFL, it was a genius, right, who figured out how to give everybody an equal chance to win. And in yeah. baseball, it seems as though there are no equal chances to win, recognizing that, I don't know whether the Yankees have a payroll of a trillion dollars and they haven't won anything for a long time. But, but the fact is, I mean, I think these small market teams are, they're doomed to failure, which means the fans can't get excited. Why don't they fix that? Like they did well, in the NFL. Well, the NFL had a built-in advantage. The biggest source of revenue is network television. And they can divide that equally. So that Green Bay gets the same percentage, the same 132nd of a giant pie as the New York Giants or the now Los Angeles Rams or Chicago Bears, who are in the same division as the Packers. So that evens things up. And then they divide uh, the gate in a way that 
gives a large portion of the gate to the visiting team. That's been their model for a long time. Uh, with baseball, the big difference is the, the difference in broadcasting revenues in New York as opposed to Pittsburgh or Chicago as opposed to Kansas City. But the, the response, at least from the Players Association to a Pirate fan or a Cincinnati Red fan is, hey, look at the Tampa Bay Rays, fourth lowest payroll in all of baseball, and they won 100 games this year. And they seem to always feel the contending team. But the way they do it goes back to the beginning of this conversation. If you're a Rays fan, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count on wearing that Evan Longoria cap uh, for the rest of your fandom because he's already gone to another team. You know, and Blake Snell starts on the World Series, and then he's on his way to San Diego. Uh, they do it by smartly using analytics and then hanging on to certain players for two years, three years, and then getting rid of them before they become too expensive. That's the only way that it can be done, and they've just done it uh, more cleverly than some other teams have. And again, without getting into all the particulars, because it makes even my eyes glaze over, but that's part of what this collective bargaining dispute is about. The Players Association thinks that some teams are tanking, that they're taking the revenue sharing and just pocketing it rather than trying to make their team better. And the owners say we need certain mechanisms that will at least move us closer to some sort of competitive equity. And they continue to argue about that. Bob, when I, when I watch sports now, here's a gripe I have, but you can't help but notice the effect of legalized gambling. Every other commercial seems to be talking about it, trying to get me to yeah. sign up and get free money. My brother is, is, tells me he figured out this way to make a gajillion dollars, and it's gambling. Uh, he's, he, gets, he signs up with this one and that one and that one. You, you turn on yeah. sports radio now, and the way that, in which they talk about the games, uh, instead of talking about you know win or losing, it's are they going to win by three? Are they going to cover the spread? It, it feels like yep. it's, it's in, in some cases it might seem harmless, but it seems like a perceptible shift in the way in which we frame conversations about competition. And it, yeah. it starts to seem like players become data points in, in stock trading tips as opposed to uh, players trying to, to get, in the end, the larger score. And I guess I, I wonder what you think that, that effect has. As a storyteller, as somebody who works hard to create three-dimensional people that you watch, root for, and understand, how do you see this, this shift in the way that we're, we're talking about these, these sporting events? I've talked about this, uh, begun talking more about it in the last year or so because of the dynamics you're mentioning. And the last commentary I did on my most recent HBO show was about that very thing and about how until very recently, the commissioners of every sport would testify before Congress or answer questions publicly saying, we're distancing ourselves from gambling. The integrity of our sport is everything. But once some rulings at various levels of the judiciary came down saying it's okay. And the Supreme Court eventually weighed in. And now more and more of the states, I think a majority of the states now uh, have legalized gambling and eventually it'll be close to all 50 of them. The jackpot there is just too big for the leagues to turn their back on it. So as you say, it's not just that they're okay with it or tolerating it. They're actively embracing it and encouraging it only years after saying in effect, that legalized gambling would be the death of sports as we know it. Well, it's not going to be the death of sports. It's another revenue source. And it does engage some people uh, among the fan base, but in an entirely different way. Fantasy sports began to do that. I remember Peyton Manning telling me once that it's driving me crazy, says Peyton, that someone will come up to me and say, you really disappointed me on Sunday. You say, wow, we, we won 35 to 10. Yeah but you handed the ball off at the one yard line instead of throwing for the touchdown because I've got you in my fantasy league. And if you'd thrown four touchdown passes instead of three, I would have had more fantasy points. That, you know, to many of us is a weird way of looking at a game. Now you can not only bet on the game, you can have prop bets within the game. You can bet on whether runs will be scored in this inning or what might happen in, in this quarter in a basketball game or a football game, or which player will score the most runs or, or score the most points or, or have the most yards. And so I, I think it fundamentally changes the way that gambling portion of the audience is relating to sports. 
my dad was an inveterate gambler. And I mentioned this in this, you know, if you have absolutely nothing to do in six minutes to spare, if you Google Bob Costas on gambling, it was just a couple of months ago on HBO. But my dad bet in the old fashioned way. He had a bookie. He had a, a password, like an alias that, that he had to let him know. And he literally bet with guys named Three Finger and Blinky and Fury. A guy came to the door once to collect. And my dad told me, I was like 11, tell him I'm not here. There's two cars in the driveway on a summer Sunday. And this guy looked like Central Casting had sent him in. And he's on a, on a sweltering Sunday. He's wearing a full suit. You know, he's got a pinky ring. He's not here. All right. And I mentioned this in the HBO thing. I once went with him to a donut shop in, in your neck of the woods now, Brooklyn, uh, where he met his bookie. And he was on, my dad was on a huge winning streak. And eventually the bookie would slide a paper bag across the counter of the donut shop, which contained $14,000 in $100 bills in 1966, only five grand less than what our house had cost. But not before the bookie in an act of touching largesse had said, that your boy, nice boy. You like milk? And I'm thinking, no, you putz. I'm 12 years old. I drink tequila. That's what I'm thinking. But I just say, yes. And he says, give the kid a glass of milk and a donut. What did he care? It's all business to him. My dad would have to pay up eventually himself, which brings me back to your initial point. First one's free. You know, the first, the first thousand dollars is free. Bet on us. They make it sound like it's all jackpots all the time. You know what that is? The first $500 is free or whatever it is. It's the pusher coming out of an alley saying, hey, kid, here you go. First one's free. So we, so we can hook you. Let's think this through. It doesn't take much thought. If over time and as a group, gamblers didn't lose much more than they win, no Nathan Detroit floating crap game, no racetrack with horse races, no casino, and now no BetMGM, DraftKings, whatever it is, none of those would ever exist. As a group, it's a losing proposition. Now, if you want to just gamble you know, within reason, because you get a kick out of it, you like to have something riding on the game, fine. But, you know, some people are going to get hooked. And in a certain sense, the leagues are going to be complicit in that because they're not just allowing it, they're encouraging it. You remember the terrible story of Arch Schleister out here, the quarterback. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. And his career was ruined. But, you know, I, I want to be positive about all this. But when what you're really talking about, Bob, and maybe something to think about for your show when you take MLB, it's all about money. The NFL, it's all about money. Now we got to play 18 games, and at some point they'll jump the shark. The colleges right. with NIL and these coaches, there is a consequence to money dominating, and that is we lose the soul of these games. Yeah. I mean, it was the soul of games that helped heal the country, wasn't it? People on both coasts yelling and screaming for their team because there was an innocence attached to it. Is there a way for us to get some of these great players? I mean, I mean, Jordan made a lot of money, but, you know, there was something about Jordan that was special. You know, Sandy Koufax, he wouldn't pitch on a Saturday, right, because he violated his personal faith. We've seen a lot of players stand up and, and take positions. Is it maybe time for the owners to do that? I mean, how do we – because I, I fear we're losing the soul. It becomes less interesting when the soul is gone. Because well, it's all about who wins. I mean, how do we, what do we do about that? Is there an answer to that? I don't know that you can ever recapture that the society changes and all the dynamics change. And in truth, the players were right. It started in baseball. It spread to other sports. Justice was on their side when they uh, achieved free agency. And I have no resentment. I've never been in the camp of, hey, utility infielders make more than Stan Musial ever made. Yeah, that's a fact, but that's a function of the money that's out there and the players deserve their portion of it. But it is better for sports overall. To use your Jordan example, Michael Jordan was a Chicago Bull. He wasn't a Cav, a member of the Heat, a Cav again, and then the Lakers. It's one of the things that differentiates him from LeBron James. It doesn't make him a better human being, but it does change the relationship between Michael Jordan and sports fans in his era and, and LeBron James. I don't know that we can ever get back to that fully. 
but you would you would hope that that as a group players kind of appreciate that that there's a difference between just performing and being part of a team part of a community a connection there i think many players do but not not all of them do but i think if there's a gut reaction too a gut reaction on the part of fans it's different now it used to be 100% pro owner and anti player but there's still a portion that just reflexively says hey these pampered prima donnas are making so much money why aren't they content with it well the owners are making a lot of money too when i look at some of these i think about lebron james and i have sympathy for him like imagine being somebody who's in ohio why would you ever stay in a state like that you'd <laughs> use every possible opportunity you had to to get away to a, a far superior situation. Well, you had a chance to go to Michigan, and you clearly decided that that wasn't, he wasn't going to entertain that thought. By <laughs> well, he's from Akron. No. And he's I watched Michigan Akron. play basketball so. the other night. I don't know what happened to him. Last year, they were great, and this year, I don't I don't know what the hell they're doing. They're of course, they got replaced stuff. by their football team, which did so great in the in the championship game, by the way. I'm more focused on two games before that, Governor. Uh, <laughs> That that seemed to be the more interesting game, Bob. You know, we, as as a as a Wolverine and a Buckeye over here, mm-hmm. I wonder. You know, we have a lot of respect for one another. Uh, but from in your opinion, what makes being a Michigan fan morally superior? Uh, other than the fact that my close friend from our days in St. Louis, Dan Deardorff, played for the Michigan Wolverines. I can't oh, think of one reason why Michigan guys is superior. No, 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 no. This is no just BS. Come I, on. I cannot think of any other reason. I was Michigan, a fan. I mean, I, I, if I'd been friends with Archie Griffin, then, then maybe I would think, oh, I, I, I'm just, I'm caught, in, I'm caught in the middle here. Speaking of caught in the middle, we can go on forever with Bob, and we sort of do. So we're going to save the rest of that chat for a later episode. Trust me. It's going to be more entertaining than the Olympics or the Super Bowl combined. So you're going to want to listen. For folks listening, watch Back on the Record with Bob Costas on HBO and HBO Max. And catch Bob regularly as MLB Network host and play-by-play announcer, the great Bob Costas. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Governor. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producers, Oscar Guido. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort, with production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by Acast.